the way I like to think of recovery is um, in terms of a pyramid. So I really think about the bottom of the pyramid, the base, the things that we build everything on top of as really being sleep and mental recovery. Very close to that, but just sort of up a rung a little bit on the pyramid is nutrition. The next level up, we're sort of getting into some of these um, different kinds of strategies that you see often the elite athletes do, but we really want to make sure you've got the foundations or the base of that pyramid before you start adding fancy things on top of that. Um, it's like getting the base of the cake right before you put the icing and then before you put the sprinkles on. From Women's Health Australia, this is Uninterrupted, a podcast where we share honest and inspiring conversations so that you can live a healthier, more empowered life. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Gebilagen. If you've ever skipped the cool down at the end of a gym class or pushed through another workout when you're running on empty, guilty, this episode is for you because friends, we're talking about recovery. Professor Shona Halson is a leading expert in the fields of sport performance and recovery, who has worked with the Australian Institute of Sport and the Australian Olympic team, as well as countless athletes here and internationally. She's also a part of the expert team on Be Recovered, an immersive online course via the health app Benefit Pocket that's all about the science and how-tos of recovery. Professor Halson talks to our managing editor, Alex Davies, about why prioritizing recovery really is vital for performance and well-being, as well as how to make the strategies in the recovery pyramid, more on that later, work for you. Plus, she gives the expert lowdown on everything from ice baths and compression gear to those massage guns you've seen athletes and fitness pros using. Over to Shona and Alex. Professor Shona Hulson, hi. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. So we're going to be talking today about recovery and fitness recovery. And I'd just love to start with, actually, when we say the word recovery around fitness and exercise, what are we actually talking about here? What does recovery actually mean? Yeah, it's a great question because I think it can mean different things to different people. Obviously, if you know you have an injury, people think about recovery from, from that angle. But Purely from a recovery from exercise perspective, we think of recovery as restoring the body and the brain back to where it was before you started exercise. So exercise, even though it's fantastic for us, is a stressor to the body, a physiological stressor and can also be a psychological stressor. Um, And so the idea is that recovery brings us back to hopefully close to where we started so that we can um, either do our day-to-day functions uh, well or we can exercise and train again at a high level the next time we do that exercise again. I like when you're saying about it being recovery for the brain as well as the body. Yeah, and it's interesting but also kind of sad that, you know, on my background's in physiology and most of us have spent our life in the periphery, in the things like measuring lactate. You know, that's one of the classics. But, of course, we know that, you know, the mind and the body are very, very connected. And so the fact that we've spent so long, you know, looking at the periphery, um, looking at physiological aspects and not really paying much attention to the brain uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. So there is a lot of focus now, and particularly at the university where I'm at, is uh, looking at mental fatigue and how in particular athletes get um, experienced mental fatigue, but also how, you know, us as, as non-elite athletes also, you know, just experience that mental fatigue. So people might say, look, I'm physically not that tired, but mentally I'm pretty fatigued. So making sure that we address that aspect as well as the physical aspect is really important. It's sometimes hard as well, I think, to realise sometimes that you're mentally fatigued. I feel like we go, 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 and sometimes you just think, oh, 
this is just normal, you know, and it's hard to hard to pick up on that sometimes. Yeah, completely. And I think we kind of get used to a certain level of normal where we're always tired, we always have a bit of sleep deprivation, we're constantly connected in terms of, you know, whether that's smartphone, social media, whatever that might be, that we have a lot of external stimulation and we don't often take that time to just have minimal stimulation, um, some, some downtime, some mental recovery. So, yeah, I think it's something that's becoming increasingly important and to recognise that if we can add a little bit of extra mental recovery, uh, it's probably going to be good you know, across a range of different aspects of our health and well-being. I was going to ask you that actually about, obviously we've said that, you know, athletes focus on recovery, but for us non-athletes as well, I feel like there's a growing awareness around it, but also it's something we can put on the back burner, maybe not prioritise sometimes, perhaps if we're running out of time or with a workout or something like that. But why is it important for us non-athletes to do, you know, from a health and well-being, but also for our actual performance and our training? Yeah, it's certainly important especially when you think about the other things that are going on in non-elite athletes lives that may not be happening in elite athletes lives so yes you know the truly elite athlete might be training two or three times a day and they need a lot of recovery but for many of them they're not actually working they don't have a day job or their you know their, their, their job is their is their sport whereas for many of us if we work at you know a normal a normal day a normal nine to five uh, and we want to do our exercise usually that is earlier in the morning or later in the afternoon. Uh, And so often we get this sort of really extensive, really congested kind of life schedule where, you know, there's everything else, we we jam-pack everything else in because we've got jobs to do as well. And then often if people, you know, want to do, you know, quite a bit of exercise, like if you're training for a marathon or you're um, training for a distance event, then it takes a lot of time and so then often that occurs on the weekend. So the time when many people would be having a bit of a, a bit of downtime, a bit of rest and relaxation, a lot of people who are in the general population, if they're exercising a lot or training for something, then weekends become really important to get that volume in. So, And, and I guess the other aspect is that you know, recovery is not, as I said, important, important for the body and the brain. And so being well rested and well recovered and good sleep and all those kinds of things is really important for our productivity and our work as well as our exercise. So you know, being able to sustain a full day's work without being you know completely exhausted at the end of the day being really efficient not making mistakes you know recovery and sleep especially really good for the brain so being able to make good decisions all these kinds of things so I think it is easy for us to jam pack lots of things in um, to the day but generally something has to give at some point and if we can think about adding in a little bit more recovery or taking care of ourselves a bit better than potentially the things that we are doing we can do them better or or more efficiently and then that includes our athletic performance does it and you know we get more from our next session if we've recovered from the previous absolutely and there's actually some pretty good science out there now uh, that's been done for a number of years um, looking at adding recovery interventions and what happens if you're performing one hour later, four hours later, 24 hours later. And all that acute information from the science definitely shows that depending on what recovery strategy you pick, but the common effective ones that we know about are definitely good for um, for ability to exercise and to back up and to do repeat efforts. So strategies, you just said the word right there. Can we, um, you please share with me and we talk through some of the key practical strategies that can support our recovery? You know, what actually can really make a difference when it comes to our approaches. 
Yeah, so the way I like to think of it, of recovery, is um, in terms of a pyramid. So I really think about the bottom of the pyramid, the base, the things that we build everything on top of as really being sleep and mental recovery. They're kind of the two real foundations, so that real off time, downtime, relaxation, sleep angle as the bottom, the foundation, the things that we should always be doing. Then I think very close to that, but just sort of up a rung a little bit on the pyramid is nutrition. So making sure that we're adequately fueled and rehydrated is really important for um, for the recovery process. The next level up, we're sort of getting into some of these um, different kinds of strategies that you see often the elite athletes do. So things like ice baths and contrast baths and compression garments and massage and soft tissue therapy and those kinds of things. So they're kind of sort of slightly up the pyramid. So they're the things that we know are effective. We definitely know work, but we really want to make sure you've got the foundations or the base of that pyramid really well established before you start adding fancy things on top of that. Um, It's like getting the base of the cake right before you put the icing and then before you put the sprinkles on, the way we kind of like to think of it. So making sure you've got that good, the good base there. And then at the top of the pyramid are some of the things that we don't have a lot of good science for, a lot of things that may be, you know, just a placebo or a belief effect, which can be important, but probably the certain things um, that we don't have as much science about, some of the the gadgets and, and fads and things like that. So we always encourage the, the athletes that, you know, that I work with to get the foundation right. When you've got that, make sure you then, you know, add the extra things a couple of times a week, like your ice baths and your massage and your compression, and then leave some of the other things that we don't know as much about for another time. I was thinking that when you said about sleep, that seems to be just, I interviewed sleep expert for the podcast a few um, months ago, and it just seems to be such a key pillar for so much of our health and well-being you know, what do you see helping people when it comes to trying to get our sleep in, in a good in a good state for recovery and for performance and life and all the things? <laughs> I guess one, and one of the things we know through our research is that athletes are one of the groups that sleep quite poorly. Um, and there's a range of reasons that also us as non-athletes also experience. But I think some of the things that we can do, you know, some of the general things that we can target are things like getting just a good routine, getting good consistency in bed and wake times. Uh, that's really important. So people that have children will know that, you know, that's exactly what, what people are told, right? Keep go put the children to bed at the same time and, and wake and hopefully wake them up at the same they wake up at the same time. Um, because the body likes consistency, it likes routine. We all know what it's like to be jet lagged. So the body likes to know bedtimes and wait times consistently and so if we can get that as consistent as possible we see improvements in the quality of sleep. I think then the next thing is looking at some of the things that might get in the way that you can actually change that you can you can have an effect on and that might be looking at caffeine intake, looking at your room environment, alcohol intake particularly bad unfortunately, things like um, you know is a room too hot, too cold, too noisy, uh, those kinds of things and then of course stress and seeing how we might be able to to manage that because you know stress and, and bad sleep just go go hand in hand for a lot of people not everyone so I think really trying to find out where you might be going wrong and then sort of backtracking and thinking okay so how can how can we address address some of those things that might be interfering with our sleep and I guess the final one really is to just make it a priority. Um, make sleep something that's that is a priority. Whereas I think what a lot of people do is 
fill their day up and, you know, everything in the day becomes, you know, more important and more important and more important and then sleep becomes, you know, shorter and shorter and shorter. And it's been interesting. I've been doing some some corporate work with some, you know, some venture capital people and one of the most interesting things is the time they're asleep, they're not making money. <laughs> and so we're trying to get around this idea that you, know, you can maybe be more efficient and um, and make better decisions if you focus on your sleep because obviously you, you can't work when you're asleep, right? So, um, but finding that balance is is really important. Yeah, you'll be better at what you're doing the next day <laughs> if you get some good sleep. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <gasps> <laughs> and then something else you mentioned as well, kind of going up from sleep was nutrition and you know, what can you tell me a little bit about that and maybe some of the things just in general to prioritise if we're thinking about that in a recovery sense? Yeah, in a recovery sense, there's probably three things that are that are most key um, and they're the things that we've all heard about. So replacing, you know, the carbohydrates, rehydrating, so replacing the fluid that you've lost, uh, that's really important for refueling and then some protein to repair the muscle, especially, you know, for different types of activities that might have resulted in some muscle damage. So, you know, there's lots of supplements and lots of things out there that, you know, are, are sold to us and, and promoted to us. But, you know, most dietitians these days really take a food first approach and that for the majority of people just eating good quality carbohydrates, proteins and, and rehydrating well is going to be enough for the average person. So um, that focus on just getting good food, good nutrition in really in the the kind of one to two hours post-exercise is really where you want to target making sure you, you've refueled and rehydrated as much as possible. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be a case of you step out the gym or whatever off your run and just knock something back straight away. You do have a few hours window. Yeah, ideally, you know, we do think about, especially for elite athletes, like if they have to compete, like if you're a swimmer and you're swimming in the morning session and then you've got, a, you know, a race in the afternoon session, you probably want to be thinking about replacing, you know, those carbohydrates um, and particularly carbohydrates for a swimmer as quickly as possible. But for the average person, you know, there's time, um, there's time to, to do that, even though we obviously the sooner the better, but it's not going to be the rate limiting factor to your recovery if you're not going to train again. Um, for like 24 hours afterwards. And then you mentioned as well about ice baths and that's something I actually wanted to ask you about because we hear about a lot of women's health and, you know, people can read all the information out there and things, people talking about the role of temperature in recovery and whether it's the heat and the heat packs and the saunas or the cold and the ice packs and the ice baths. Can you tell me a bit about the role of temperature in recovery and then maybe we could yeah, maybe break it into hot and cold and, yeah, what, what's kind of going on there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I'll say that initially a lot of the work, especially the research that we've done, really focused on the cold because cooling for recovery was really seen as as important and particularly, you know, in a country like where I am in Australia where it's warm, right? And so, you know, athletes often get really high core temperatures so to speed up the recovery process, let's cool them down. And so that idea of looking at cooling um, became really popular. And now probably seeing in the last couple of years this idea of maybe looking at heating as another strategy to maybe increase some blood flow, uh, which may help in the repair process. 
So we have a lot of evidence about cooling being effective for acute recovery, so that when you've got to back up within, you know, sort of 24 hours or 48 hours. We have less science around the heat. Uh, we know a lot of people find the heat more comfortable, obviously, than, um, than being in an ice bath. Uh, but some of the early research we have on heat is that you know, it, it can be an effective recovery modality. I think the thing we need to remember with heating is that, I mean, and everyone who's been in a sauna knows that you know, for the first five or 10 minutes, it can feel okay. But then, you know, you stay in too long, and it becomes stressful and uncomfortable. And so just finding that balance between something that's warm and relaxing and increasing a bit of blood flow versus, you know, you're losing more fluid because you're sweating a lot and your heart rate's really high and you've actually put your body under physiological stress. So I think, look, yes, there's definitely benefits to ice. And we sort of see that used when people have really high core temperatures when, when they're exercising in heat or just generating high core temperatures from lots of exercise. Ice can be good if you've got a lot of muscle damage. It's almost like icing an injury. But then we can also see heating maybe being used as a more relaxing type therapy and also maybe further down. So if you've done something where you've got a lot of muscle damage, you might ice initially, but then after two or three days, you might bring in some heat to try and increase some of that blood flow. I think the simplest way for me that I sort of describe it is Again, if we're trying to bring people back to balance or what we call homeostasis, if you're really warm, you probably want to cool down. If you're cold, and we do have athletes who experience outdoor exercise in certain parts of the world where it's really cool. If you're a sailor and you're out in the ocean and you're wet and you come back you know, on land and you're freezing cold, maybe heating is the strategy for you. So thinking about what your core temperature might be like and, and using different strategies to come back to baseline. But in my experience, you know, the, the temperature is an important factor for recovery, but it's also, especially water, it's the hydrostatic pressure of water that's really important. So if we think of compression garments um, that a lot of people wear, they're about 20 millimetres of mercury pressure, whereas standing in water might be more like 100 to 150 millimetres of mercury pressure. So we really do have a lot of pressure that's exerted when we're in water that helps that blood flow and that removal of waste products and, and that kind of thing. So it's temperature related, but also this hydrostatic pressure related effects when we're in water. For people listening to this, if someone's listening to this and thinking, I've never done an ice bath before, but I'm quite intrigued by it, you know, where do you start in a safe way that's why it's you know it's not a case you just <laughs> jump in so to speak or where do you start safely yeah so look most ice bath temperatures are going to be somewhere around 10 to 15 degrees celsius somewhere around there this is what the elite athletes use which is kind of cold but the way you know we think about it is as long as the water temperature is cooler than your skin temperature and your skin temperature is about 34, 35 degrees, you'll eventually cool down. So trying water at 20 degrees or even 25 degrees to start off with and easing your way in can be a good idea. Now, most people don't have, you know, a plunge pool in their back in their backyard um, ready to do, you know, to do their recovery, but you can try a swimming pool is going to be coolish. You know, that's probably, probably around 26, 27. That's probably not really cold enough to be considered an ice bath but um, you can get obviously cooler water in you know rivers and lakes and the beach and oceans and things like that where you can start to get in into like cooler water and then of course you've just got your own bath at home and if you depending on where you live pure cold tap water will probably give you a, a reasonably cold ice bath if you really want to go hardcore and you're serious about it fill your bath up 
or get a kiddie's pool, fill it up with water, throw some ice in and aim for around about 10 to 15 degrees. But there's nothing wrong with easing into it and trying some cold water that's not that cold beforehand. Working your way to kind of what works for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then obviously, we mentioned about compression clothing. And I was thinking, yeah, about that role of pressure, like you were saying, and massage, massage guns, foam rolling, kind of all in this kind of this massage and pressure kind of umbrella. What's going on there? How do they work? And what's your kind of What's your take, I guess? <laughs> That's a super good question. I don't think we have all the answers in that space. <laughs> um, I think when we're, when we're talking about compression, we're really talking about a lot of these recovery strategies come from the medical world. So like ice baths coming from icing and injury. Compression, we see that, um, you know, compression in the medical world for people with lymphedema or preventing deep vein thrombosis. So we know from compression that what the aim of compression is that the compression garments actually squeeze the more peripheral small veins so that it forces the blood flow up through the deeper veins. Um, so that makes this increase in, in flow happen. And there's some good science to say that that actually happens. So from a compression garment perspective, that's kind of the mechanisms that we think is around blood flow and, and that, that from that pressure effect. Massage and some of these massage guns and um, foam rolling is probably a slightly different approach. You know, massage can really be around reducing areas of tightness. And so we know that the muscle gets really tight and that restricts blood flow to that particular area. And so that can cause pain um, and inflammation and soreness. So using massage can be really effective. I guess one of the, the challenges with the massage guns is that often I hear people kind of take it a little bit too far. And so you know, a lot of people think a little bit is good, so more is better, and they can really get kind of hardcore and give themselves actually more muscle damage from using those massage guns. So I think they can be okay, especially if you don't have access to a therapist or you can't access one because of cost or because of location. It can be an option, but um, if you've got something wrong with you or an injury or something serious, seeing a, a professional is always a good idea. I was thinking there's a, a guy who works on the Men's Health Australia team who loves the massage guns. And I remember in the office, all of us sometimes would be like, oh, can I just use that for a bit of my arm? And then he was like the, the professional massage gun guy in the office. <laughs> <laughs> they, do, they do feel good. And it's funny because a lot of these things you've probably noticed already, there's, you know, ice baths feel cold, compression feels pressure. The massage guns is like vibration and, and pressure as well. So they're all things that are really sensory. Um, and a lot of people like that because that takes away some of the pain sensation because, you know, if you're sore from exercise or you've got tight muscles, what do you want to do? You want to get rid of the pain. And so this pressure uh, sensation or this vibration um, sensation takes away some of that the pain information going to the brain. That's so interesting. You're right. It's all that, that tactile kind of experience. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And again, you know, athletes I work with, athletes are competitive, right? So, you know, how long can I stay in an ice bath or, you know, how long, how much, you know, you ask them how much pressure do you want on your compression pump type devices and a hundred percent, you know, how long do you want it for? As long as I can. <laughs> and sometimes that's not always the best idea. Are there any kind of other recovery approaches that you think are worth considering? I feel like we've spoken about so many fantastic different ones. Is there anything else you think is worth flagging? Uh, the other, only other main area would be this mental fatigue area and what we can do to, to combat that and really this sort of the mental recovery side of things. And that may be, there's a lot of things like flotation tanks that can be good for, for that idea of just sensory deprivation 
things like meditation, relaxation. Now, I can talk to athletes and I can talk to them about meditation, relaxation, and you can just they might not be rolling their eyes, but, they, you know, they want to. Um, and then there's other people that will be like, yeah, I'll do, you know, I'll try a 20-minute relaxation, you know, or I'll get the Headspace app or I'll do something. You know, there, there are people that will try it. But this idea of just disengaging for a little while with technology, um, making sure you're getting also sleep and mental recovery are kind of really closely related, but just making sure you've got some of that downtime and some of that time away from sport, especially if you're an elite athlete or away from exercise and work if you're not. Um, so just finding things that relax you and it might be different for different people. Might, you know, reading a book might actually be, you know, a, a good recovery strategy for someone because it's just taking taking some time away from, um, from a whole lot of other stimulation. And when it comes to looking at how our body is recovering and how our body's doing, is there kind of a way to, I guess, keep an eye, yeah, keep track of how our body's doing or perhaps maybe signals that can indicate that we need to do a bit more recovery or take in a different approach? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think the person that nails that is actually going to make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it's a combination of a couple of things and it might depend on what you're really trying to recover from. So, you know, if you're someone who's mad CrossFit athlete and you want to go five times a week and you want to get lots of good training in probably what you're going to experience is a lot of that muscle fatigue and muscle damage type approach and you know from that angle making sure you know you're really doing some you know targeting your recovery to, to that becomes really important if you're someone who's doing uh, something more more like swimming for example where you're you don't have a lot of muscle damage but you know you, the focus there is probably on making sure you're getting kind of good nutrition to replace a lot of the fuels that you've used. So I think there's kind of different recovery strategies that might be better for, for different people who are doing different types of activity. Can there be a sense from our body if we're overtraining? You know, how will our body let us know that maybe we're overtraining or perhaps just not getting the recovery training balance quite spot on yeah so for people who might have a lot of muscle damage you might be, you might track or just take set, take note of different areas of muscle soreness that you might experience and that might be one way of tracking it the way that i think of tracking recovery and something that i just noticed so for example i've been away for a while i did my first gym session back on a monday on monday it was a really hard crossfit session i'm sore I'm really sore today from what I did yesterday. So that's one way I know that I'm probably not as well recovered because what I would do normally in the gym, I'm having a different response to. And that's one way people could track. So you can go, okay, normally on a Wednesday morning, I do a 10K run and on Thursday, I feel pretty good. If it gets to Thursday and you're not feeling great, and maybe it's physically, maybe it's mentally, that might be a sign that you're not recovering. So you might not be tracking things day to day, but you might have this quite a standard session you do and you just really kind of pay attention to how you feel in the days after. And that and that might be you haven't, you're not sleeping well, you're physically tired, you're mentally tired, you've got a lot of soreness, whatever it might be, because it depends on what you've done. But you can maybe use that as a way of kind of tracking to see how you're progressing or not progressing or how much recovery you might need. So if you're taking longer than normal, that's probably a sign that you're not as well recovered as you could be. And seeing how you feel after each one, that's a really interesting way to track it. Yeah. Is there a myth or misconception about recovery? Do you think that you'd love to clear up or, you know, something that you wish that, wish that we all knew perhaps? Yeah, look, I don't know if this is a 
like a wish we all knew thing, but it's a kind of a, a thing I wish we all did. And that was really just to, to pay attention to the fundamentals and the foundations. I think it's really easy to go, look, I'm not going to put the effort in to sleeping well and eating right, but I'm going to get myself a massage gun. And it's probably not the, obviously probably not the best approach to take. People sort of want shortcuts and I think, you know, one of the one of the myths is that doing, you know, a five minute, ten minute ice bath is the same as getting eight or nine. You know, I've done my recovery when you've slept for six hours and you probably need to be sleeping for nine hours. So I think the thing we should be doing is putting the work in, even though you know people like the, you know, the shiny, fancy things that go bang, um, and that feel really, you know, that tactile thing, that sensory thing we were talking about when the really good stuff is in sleeping well, eating well, exercising well, and it's not exciting and it's not sexy and it's not all the things that, you know, people want the quick fix. We, we actually need to do the work, but people will notice the, the, the effects on the health and their well-being when they do these things as well as they can. Yeah, you build that foundation over time, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And you become more tolerant to things, you know, you can cope with things better. You have, you know, especially things like sleep, we see that when people are sleep deprived and everyone's experienced this they're either more emotional or more rational or they're more impulsive or they're more irritable you know there's all these things that happen that you just kind of accept whereas and you know we know you don't have to be perfect every day of the week every night of the week for the entire year but being as consistent as you can with some of these things can make a really big long-term difference I wondered if you could share a kind of watch this space area of research in the recovery space. Like, is there anything that's really intriguing or exciting you that you hold a lot of hope for? Yeah, look, I think there's probably two areas um, and I have touched a little bit on the mental fatigue side, but I think that that's going to be you know really important and how, how we combat that, how we uh, plan our day, how we plan our training, how we plan things to to minimise that mental fatigue and then how we look at how we recover from that. It's kind of a bit of an untapped area uh, that people haven't really looked at. So I think we can maybe get some really good benefits for our athletes by focusing on that. And the other area that I think is really popular at the moment, lots of unanswered questions, is really in this idea of behaviour change because most people know what to do, they just don't do it. Um, What sorts of messages can we give? How do we set up a good environment? How do we provide the the right kind of education and incentives or whatever it might be to help people make um, better decisions and better choices, which is obviously essentially how do we change people's behaviours when we know what to do, right? We just, (laughs) we know we need to sleep more, eat better, you know, but it's hard to do. I can't remember what university it was from, but I read some research recently and I'll pop it in the show notes, but about the scientists were looking at the connection between microbes in our gut and how we respond to fatigue and mental and physical fatigue and how that can be actually looked at, broken down and personalised maybe as a, a thing for the future. And I thought that was so interesting. It's all so connected. Yeah, it is. And I still find it fascinating that we've been doing research for a long time now in different areas but particularly in exercise and we still can't tell you the best time to eat the best time to exercise and the best time to sleep in combination um so this idea of chronobiology and chrononutrition and putting all the timings together you know there's lots of interesting information out there about fasting and when to eat and those kinds of things but this idea that we run off a 
24 and a bit hour body clock, but we still don't have really good information about timing. So I think that's another really exciting area. And so I will say, and I've got another really exciting area that I've got a few students working in, and that's females and recovery. Sleep across the menstrual cycle. Do we recover differently at different phases of the menstrual cycle? Um, and I'm guilty of it, as are many researchers, that we've always done a lot of research on men. And it's um, obviously about time that we, we do better research on 50% of the population. And part of the challenges around doing research with female athletes is the cycle and that we're all different. We all have different cycles, but that's no excuse. You know, we really need to be measuring it, measuring it properly and understanding about exercise and about recovery and about sleep, depending on where we are in that cycle. That seems to be a really growing area of interest, which is so good, kind of factoring it in as an important factor rather than just an in spite of factor. Yeah, and I, I was fortunate enough to do some work with the US women's soccer team in the lead up to the World Cup in 2019. And, you know, a group that are incredible athletes, incredibly diligent and we're asking all that, you know, doing great work in their tracking of their cycles, which, you know, is, is public knowledge. But getting asked questions about, well, you know, how do people sleep and their differences across the cycle? And I was really embarrassed to say, look, I've done lots of research on quantifying sleep in female athletes, but have never looked at over a length of time to look at that across a cycle. And uh, we've recently had the opportunity to do that in a little bit more detail. So that's some of that data starting to come out now. I say I'm embarrassed that I haven't done that kind of research and, and we need to be doing it. And it's they're expensive studies. They're difficult to do because we need to do blood measures and urine measures the majority of the time, but we need to we need to make sure we're doing it. And just lastly, I feel like we've covered so much and it may be repeating something you've already said, but if I'll listeners were just to take one thing away from the chat today and I'm sure they'll take away much more than that but what would be your number one piece of advice when it comes to looking after our recovery and our well-being? I would say uh, to really start to to pay attention and to do the best that you can in the area of sleep. It's the best recovery strategy we have. It's the, one of the best things we can do for our physical and our mental health. Um, and so whether that involves some kind of monitoring or just prioritising recovery and just see how you can maybe get half an hour extra a night that will definitely add up and people will see the benefits in their, yeah, their physical and their mental health. Professor Shona Helson, thank you so, so much for yeah, sharing your insights and taking the time to speak with me today. It's been so interesting. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for the great questions. This episode of Uninterrupted was hosted by Alex Davies and produced by me, Lisa Gabby-Luggan, with additional sound editing by Abby Williams. For more from us, pick up a copy of the latest issue with Jacinta Franklin on the cover and visit us at womenshealth.com.au or follow us on Insta at womenshealthaus. See you next time.